Deep and meaningful conversations to connect, find calm, feel empowered and uncover clarity. Welcome to the Death Dying Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Hello Heidi. My beautiful guest today is Heidi Gregg and she's from Kangaroo Island. And if you haven't heard of that, it's down off the coast of South Australia, a beautiful little island down there. Welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. After a very busy fortnight and a conference in Sydney, it's good to land back home. All right. Now, Heidi, you've got, a, I think, a fabulous story and I would love for you to be able to tell people about it. But in a nutshell, I call you a trauma doula, but I know there's a lot more to you than that. So you've had a nursing background and you still do, I think, work with the ambulance service and you're doing a lot of work in your community around around death and dying. So give a little bit more detail to the story. So how the nursing journey, the ambulance journey, and then how you've come into the trauma space and, and the death and dying space. Well, it's really interesting because funny how your past experiences always bring you to a certain point in your life. And um, when I was nursing, I realised as a young girl that my favourite people to work with were those that were dying. And I didn't sort of realise how the impact that would have later. But my favourite thing to do was to sit with patients for whom death was imminent. And it was usually in the middle of the night, you know, everything was quiet. And taking that time to just sit with them and listen to them, was a, I recognised even then that there was a kind of sacredness in that moment. And it was a real privilege to do that. And so that just kind of stayed with me. And then life took a whole lot of twists and turns and I left nursing and did a whole lot of other careers and ended up on Kangaroo Island and working for the ambulance service here. And there were a couple of things that happened there too where there was a period of time uh, a couple of years ago where three people died and those families would have loved nothing more than to have those people at home. But because they didn't really know what else to do when again when death was imminent they called the ambulance to come and take them away and I remember in each of those cases driving down their driveway with the person in the back and thinking this is the last time that they're ever going to drive down this driveway and the prof- you know how profound that moment was and it was when I reflect on those cases it was always either shortness of breath or pain that just somehow made the family lose their nerve and mm. think, oh, oh, we can't do it after all. We're going to call the ambulance and take them to hospital. So all those people, beautiful staff at the hospital, you know, I'm not criticising the hospital, but that opportunity for the family to be there at the point of death was kind of taken away. So that stayed with me. And then with the fires here, the, 19, the 2019, 2020 fires, and... That was an incredible event because what it did is the community just came together like I've never seen before. And the education that you had and the titles that you have and all that armour that you normally wear when you're out and about fell away. And people just had to stand shoulder to shoulder and get through this trauma that they were being affected by. And it was widespread. Everyone was affected. And I saw in, at that time this, the absolute strength of community and how the community rally together when there's a need. It doesn't matter 
what your previous relationships with people were, the little arguments that you might have had, it completely fell away. It was a really equalising event. And that really had a profound effect. And that was the catalyst for me to think about how we might be able to bring death back into the embrace of community. We live in the embrace of community. Is there a way we could bring death back into the embrace of community? Because, mm. it, it, I mean, I suppose if you turn the clock back 100 years, it was very much in community. And then we've lost that a bit or a lot, really, over the last you know, century and more, really. So at the moment, right now, what are you actually doing in terms of like, bringing all of that together in terms of the doula work and the, and the ambulance work and then the other business stuff that you might be doing on the side of it? So what, how are you bringing all that together? into a way that works for the community? Well, to be perfectly honest, I'm, a, I'm kind of stabbing around in the dark just a little silly <laughs> because it's also new to be, you know, um, to be honest about it. But what, I, what happened after the fires is I thought, right, maybe I could go back into palliative care, you know, mm. maybe that's something I'd think about. So as I was kind of trawling around on the internet, I came across the word doula and preparing the way as a training organisation for doulas, and I thought, that's it. That's the thing. It's perfect. I didn't want to work inside a system, inside mm-hmm. the health system, and I thought, that I reckon that could work here. So I did the training, Helen, and preparing the way, and just tentatively created a name, KI Doula Services, because what I realised is if this thing actually works in this community... I can't do it by myself. I'm going to need others to come on board. And so I was really lucky in that a few months later, there was a nurse on the island who contacted me and said, oh, I really want to do that. I think that's something that would be really great. So I also pointed her in the direction of preparing the way and she booked in and and I thought, okay, she's serious. She's invested as well. Mm. And so the idea came about that maybe we could join, join forces, you know, and work together. And so I saw that the first thing to do was community education, just simply getting the word out there that this was something that might work in this community. What do you reckon? I'll put it out there to the community. And the support was just overwhelming it's been overwhelming ever since I used last year's dying to know day to kind of put it out there Mm -hmm. and just ran some community talks very informal very relaxed took along a cardboard casket you know did you know that you could um, be buried in one of these and we just kind of threw it out there and had the most fantastic conversations community conversations and it started the buzz yeah and to the point now the word doula isn't strange anymore people are going oh yeah we know what that is and death literacy in the short time that you know we've started has just gone through the roof people are increasingly comfortable to use the d word Mm. speak very openly about what they want for end of life. It touches Mm. something really profound because you're talking straight to people's values and straight to the heart of things and, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. So so what is death literacy? What does that actually mean? To me, it means that people have an understanding that this is of the topic, the general topic, 
and then having the words to talk about it. So not using euphemisms or, you know, or talking around in circles. It's about actually saying the word dying and saying the word death and using the words that, you know, are unambiguous and being able to talk about it very comfortably. That's beautiful. So obviously your community has embraced this. Do you think it's because they they know you so well for your job in the ambulance or why do you think your community, do you think it's the trauma of the fires or do you think there's more to it than that? Actually, I think now that you've said that, I think the fires were a catalyst for a lot of people to think about the deeper meaning of things and mm. to want, want to simplify their lives and cut away the froth. That I've seen that really widespread. People are getting down to the core of what really matters. So I think there is, I think the fires did have an effect in that way. Um, I live out on the western end, so I'm quite isolated. I live in, you know, on 1,700 acres of bush. And like a lot of people, we just sort of get on quietly with our lives and connect when we really need to and are connected to nature and the sea and all of that sort of thing. So the idea of being able to die at home as an option is really appealing to a lot of people. We have a lot of farmland around here farmers that have been on the land all their lives that don't really want to suddenly have to go into town or to the mainland because, you know, they have a life-limiting illness. They want to be able to stay at home. They want to stay in the place that they're connected to. And so I actually think that that's what speaks to people Mm. because people that have made the island their home love it and they're very connected to it. And to lose that would be really heartbreaking, especially at a time when they're vulnerable and when they want familiar people around them. And we've got one hospital here and one medical centre and they're stretched to the limit, you know, despite their best intentions. They can only stretch themselves so much. So I think that idea of the community looking after its own That's what spoke to people. I think that's what it was. The Death, Dying, Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Empowerment through conversation, connection through understanding. This is the Death, Dying, Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. What sort of, I suppose, response have you had from the hospitals and the medicos and the ambulance service? So when you start to talk about end-of-life doula ring um, and it's sitting alongside the other things, what, what sort of response have you had? Well, I have to admit, Julie, I'm surprised that it's been so positive. It's been overwhelmingly positive. I recently applied for just a small grant to help us with some further training. The health, We have something here called the Health Advisory Council, and it's just a small group of local people who are dreaming up how our health service might better serve the community. And part of that is they want to build a facility um, to better service aged care because at the moment we are full to the brim you know Mm. and uh, they want a better facility to provide that kind of care and in there they want to um, include a mortuary and all of that sort of thing and we applied for a grant and they you know they were positive they supported us and in that grant application I had to get a couple of letters from people to endorse my application and a you know, a doctor, a very well-respected doctor on the island wrote a letter of endorsement and so did the the head of the ambulance service. And, you know, I'm quite, I'm so touched with what they wrote. It was so positive and supportive 
And they, yeah, we just felt like they were really rallying behind us to get this happening because they can see the need. It was that's, really, I'm still very moved by it. <laughs> uh, and that's so fabulous, isn't it? Because they're obviously being responsive to what the community wants and good on them. I think that's beautiful. And that's a key point that you're making there. You know, I said at the start, I don't really know what shape it's going to take. And in a way, it's important for that to be the case because the community will give it shape. Mm. They will let me know or let us know how we tweak it, which direction we go in. The only one time where someone's kind of threw me a bit was it was a nurse and she said something like, oh, I've heard about what you're doing. And I said, yeah, yeah, we'll see how it goes. And she said, but, you know, people don't want to clean clean up their loved ones at home. They don't want to do, you know, clean up those messes. And I just said, well, I think you'd be surprised at what people are willing to do for those that they love. I think you would be very surprised and we won't know for sure until we're actually giving it a go. And that was yeah. the only slight kind of, you know, what do you think you're doing kind of <laughs> sentiment yeah. that uh, I got a hint of, but, yeah, it, was, yeah. it hasn't been a problem. People have been really supportive. Yeah, I love that. So tell me a little bit about, like, again, as I called you a trauma doula, I suppose that fits in very well when you're working in an ambulance service or an emergency department and obviously those things will don't usually have doulas. I think that'd be a great asset, but what's a trauma doula? What does that actually mean? Well, you're talking about trauma in two different ways. There's physical trauma, in which case, I mean, the purpose, the whole purpose of an ambulance service is to save life and prolong life. So it's almost the opposite of what a doula actually does because doulas, we're not talking about prolonging life. We're actually talking turkey here and we're talking about death and as a fact of life. You know, we're not talking about keeping people alive longer. We're talking about enhancing people's quality of life. So it's a very different kind of headset. But at the moment, the ambulance service is usually, if it's a, an expected death, the ambulance service will come sometimes and they will do the transport of the body to wherever it needs to go. If it's an unexpected death, the police will sometimes do that. So to have another option um, that isn't emergency-based, I think would be much softer and much more compassionate. Mm. So there's that kind of physical trauma and also in the ambulance service, and this is sort of just a hard reality, if you go to a scene and someone has died, they don't get your first attention. The people that are alive and injured are getting your attention, not the person that's died. So just having that wider awareness that maybe the person that's died needs to be treated with a bit of dignity and not mm -hmm. just dismissed, it's, it's not hard to do. You know, cover them up, move them, you know, gently out of the way, you know, arrange for gentle transport. Don't just kind of dismiss and... You know, there's just, it's just a different awareness. And the other kind of trauma is psychological trauma when someone's died. So if someone dies, an ambulance is called and that person dies, being really sensitive to the people around and the kind of support they're going to need because, you know, ambulance officers on the whole are very efficient and we get things done and we work through a process. And But just having that 
broader awareness. It's just having a, a different kind of awareness and <laughs> including those that, that could easily be kind of just put to the side for a little while. I think. Yeah, because, again, certainly my experience of nursing and working in, like, emergency departments and things like that, it, the focus as just isn't on the families and and the people there it, it's there's so much else happening to as you say conserve life that and there just isn't anybody there you know like you might have social workers there sometimes you might have pastoral care workers there sometimes but it's not enough you need people there 24 hours a day to talk to people and comfort people and pick up the pieces so I mean I love that concept but I mean how how far away do you think Australia is from understanding the emotional needs of family and the person in hospitals and aged care and ambulance and everything else. So how far are we away from that? Well, I think there's definitely an awareness out there. I think the pendulum is slowly, so, so slowly coming back. There are some fantastic people in the health services, but I think resourcing is the issue it's not that they don't want to they simply don't have the personnel and the resources to give a lot of time to the psychological and emotional side of things you know we rely heavily here on our mental health team we have this one social worker i think at the moment we have you know, another mental health professional they're not always available and they're certainly not on the end of a phone if you if you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you desperately need to talk to someone, there isn't often someone local you can ring mm. who will pick up the phone. You have to ring you know, a national service. I think, yeah, we're slow. It's slow. It's very slow. Yeah. It's very easy to be idealistic though, isn't it, When from just with words, but the reality of resources and money is a completely different thing. Connection is key for the Death, Dying, Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. If we speak to you and people that work in your space, reach out for a collaboration. Julie at doulaconnections.com.au. So just getting back to the concept of dying at home, are you finding that a lot more people are wanting that when they become aware of that? Absolutely, without a doubt, Julie. People are surprised at what's, um, what's, what they can do. They're always surprised. And people are starting to get advanced care directives sorted. I'm making that a real focus for community education at the moment. Get, your, you know, get that sorted. It's not scary. You just have to be prepared to go into that conversation. You know, young, healthy people are starting to ask about getting advanced care directives sort of. In South Australia, you can be buried on your own land if you've got a rural holding, and people are very interested in that. You know, they're looking for their little plots now, and, you know, I get invited to go to people's property and we go for a little walk, and, of course, walking and talking is always very good. So we'll just walk around and they'll, you know, have a look where they might like to be buried. And of course, then the conversation opens up much more broadly. Mm. I think it's just wonderful. But yeah, people are very open. They totally understand why they, why we think it's a good option to have. Yeah. And so what, what resources do families need to make that happen? Like to, you know, if you've got somebody that really does want to die at home, what do they need? What do the family need to have to make that, uh, say it's something that might happen, you know, you might be 
you know, for say it's a, a six weeks or two weeks, you know, process where you really are starting to get into that active dying stage, for instance, what do people need? Well, we, I mean, we've been very fortunate. I happen to have through a, a different circumstance, I happen to have a hospital bed available that people can use, but they can hire one from the hospital, but we've got one that people can use. And we've got like personal care. I've got a, a stack of personal care boxes and things um, that I acquired that, you know, I'm happy for people to use. They don't have to buy them, just use them. Walking frames, shower chairs, that kind of thing we have. The space at home, that's really important. Have you got a space at home where you could have a bed 24-7? doesn't have to be in the bedroom. Would you like the person to be part of the household, you know? You know, heating and cooling is probably important to keep people comfortable. Linen, uh, you know, supply fresh linen, you know, whatever they like to wear. A view to outside. Have you got an open window? Can you let fresh air in? Given that shortness of breath and pain are usually the two things that will distress a family, it's really, I think, important to talk through how, you know, this, is, this could happen. What would you, how would you like that to be managed? The hospital can set up, they can set up morphine pumps so that people can manage pain right at the end of life. They can do that. So it's a matter of having really close conversations with what's possible. There is a community service here, but again, the personnel, it's just a matter of limited personnel, but it's important yeah. to work with a community nurse if a community nurse is coming into the home have really open conversations with them about any concerns that the family might have and they can do wound care and you know they can come up with some solutions for managing shortness of breath and all of that sort of thing it's really that that's a really important conversation to have so and do a family have people who can come in and do and give each other relief because Carers just get so exhausted. So being organising a kind of roster or something like that, mm. personnel who can take care of things. Over here, it's things like feeding livestock mm. and making sure pets are fed and, you know, ha- is there enough feed out in the paddocks? And maybe that's something, you know, you can usually find someone that's happy to do that. They don't want to get too close, but they do want to help. Yeah. So there's a lot of jobs that people would love to do. It's just a matter of having the humility to ask. Mm. So, Heidi, how hard is it to to get oxygen at home? So you mentioned a couple of times the shortness of breath. So apart from oxygen, what else could people do and how do they get the oxygen if they need it? Well, the hospital can provide oxygen, can provide them with that, and the community nurse can change that over, make sure they've got fresh cylinders. Just simple things like posture, you know, and and also reducing anxiety because if people are anxious, it, you know, all of that stuff, so just keeping the environment as calm as possible and then having a plan for if, if breathlessness becomes a real issue, there are ways that that can be managed through particular medications. And a community nurse can check that daily. How are we going with that? Is this still, you know, it can be adjusted accordingly. Day by day, yeah. And I'm aware that you've been starting to do some work with the beautiful Natural Grace and Libby Maloney. So 
why have you sort of looked at getting that help from Victoria when you're sort of in South Australia? Like, do you have funeral services on Kangaroo Island? or So what, what's that about? Oh, it's so exciting. We don't have one that's based here. Usually people have to uh, ring a provider from the mainland. They ring a funeral director from the mainland, but they come over, the family are working to their schedule. It's when they can fit it in. It's when the ferries run. And depending on how busy they are, the family fit in. Sometimes there's a very quick turnaround. You know, the, the person's in the hospital morgue. The funeral director picks them up from there. And it's all a bit sort of, it's all outsourced, if you like. So we're very keen to have a service here that's local. But to get any training is really difficult. Funeral directors generally don't invite people in. And especially if you're a bit out there, you know, if you're a doula, if you're one of those woo-woo kinds, <laughs> you're not actually very welcome, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so Libby, gosh, I mean, even just saying it, I, I, I'm still, it, it's just so amazing, um, asked, you know, would you be interested in, in having a pilot, running a pilot for how Natural Grace could support people to die at home and then the after-death care? in the home would you be interested in taking part in a pilot to see if that could work <laughs> and I just kind of went yes you know like yeah. no to me and so we are now working very closely with natural grace their support they're mentoring us and we can now provide that after death care and so we've just spent a couple of weeks over with them during a time that was just really busy, you know, unusually busy and the learning curve was like that and we, we just experienced so much and were guided through how to manage that side of things because that it's, can be quite complex. There's a lot of legalities that you have to meet. So to have the support of Natural Grace behind us, we can just relax and just take it step by step and, of course, with experience we'll you know, we'll be fine. Our confidence will will grow. But just knowing that Libby's just there or Jackie's just there on the other end of the phone, but all their funeral directors are awesome. Like we'd be very comfortable now to ring anyone that's on call and just say, hey, can you step us through this? Mm. Again, we don't know exactly what shape it's going to take. We just have to trust that we can work together mm. and, and sort of that. And then once we've ironed out some of the wrinkles, then uh, hopefully... You know, it's an option that others around the country might be able to take, particularly those that are in remote locations, yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I see such a, a beautiful pathway for the the family with with the same people there supporting them right through. You know, it's instead of, you know, part dying and then being passed over to a funeral director, you sort of become that in a way. Would you also operators do say do celebrancy or memorial services if people wanted those? Is that something you would put into that model as well? I'm also a trained funeral celebrant. I trained ah. Sally Kent. Awesome. Amazing. Because I wanted to understand how you speak to people when someone's died. And of course mm. celebrancy is very much about coming up with the right words, you know, when you're talking about somebody. But, of course, her training is much more vast than that. It's, it's just beautiful. So I did a two-day, there was a two-day training with her, but then she's also put together this online 
course, if you like, that you have 12 months to complete and that's, that's really rigorous. Mm. You have to submit video of yourself. You have to write different types of eulogies. You get incredible support. And so as it turned out, just when I got to the very last one, I had to submit a video of a mock ceremony, a mock you know, funeral, and it turned out that I had a real one to do. So I asked if I could send that, if I recorded it, could I submit that? Normally it's a no, but, um, you know, given the circumstances I was allowed to and I run a memorial service here. Wonderful. To do it and it was stunning. It was, stunning. It was community-led out in a park. Um, it was just great and I'm just so grateful for that training. Yeah, so definitely that's something we can put in the mix but because it's such a close community something we do have to keep in mind is we'll know a lot of the people Mm. and so if there's ever if it's ever too close we actually I think need to line up someone who could come you know like a so I've lined up a celebrant in Adelaide who would be willing to come over and you know run that side beautiful The Death, Dying, Diagnosis and Doulas podcast has more to share. Our daily advice will help you to access information through conversations and feel empowered. Follow Doula Connections on Facebook and Instagram. Another thing I'd just like to hear your opinion on, like where's South Australia at with its voluntary assisted dying? It's been passed in the Senate, I believe, but the the nitty you know the details haven't been worked out yet we're mm. still waiting i find it really frustrating about all the differences in our states and the rules and the regulations and they they're so like they're just so different in so many ways and i don't think it serves us as a community to have so many different rules and regulations and differences but so what's your opinion on voluntary assisted dying what what do you think i'm going to say i'm a bit of a fence-sitter with this one, um, it seems to give rise to really strong emotions in people or again. So I try and walk very carefully on neutral ground. I have a personal feeling about it for myself. Mm -hmm. For myself, I don't think it would be a choice. But when you're actually faced with that choice, Mm. you might think very differently. We don't know unless we're actually in that position. For sure. Yeah, it's a really tricky one. And I suppose if we're there to serve what people really want, then part of that is staying non-judgmental. Yeah, true. Choices. Yeah. That that might be a choice they take. So Mm -hmm. I think as doulas or people working in that end-of-life space, we do need to sort out for ourselves where we sit with that. Can we be neutral here? No, I love it. Fair enough. So if you could turn the clock forward 10 years and what you're in the process of creating now, what does it look like in 10 years' time? So what what services are are there on Kangaroo Island for your community? What does it look like 10 years from now? That's a good question. Goodness me. I would like community-led funerals just be completely normal just across the board, I would like to see, I mean, in 10 years, I I might not be involved anymore. I'm getting old, Julie. (laughs) Tell um, me about it. Me too. (laughs) I'd like to see that, you know, my partner, Kath, and, you know, that she keeps going and then there's other doulas that have come on board in the meantime. So there's just this organised, this doula services it has, you know, a number of doulas sitting under that umbrella and they're delivering 
before death and after death care, and it's just a normal option that people have. I'd like to see the stress on the health system ease because of the existence of a doula service mm-hmm. and people just talking about it as very normal, normal yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So if people want to get some more information about you, then what's the best way for them to find you or your business or what the other things that you do? Like how would they get in contact with you? Well, initially, until we sort out how we will work, that, you know, the finer details with natural grace, for now, the best thing is they just look for KI Doula Services on Facebook. We've got an active Facebook page or they Google KI Doula Services and that should take them to the website. And there's a contact page. It's very simple. I overloaded it with lots of information. Hopefully, it will just trigger people to make contact and then they can ask whatever they want and ask for Wonderful. more information. Thank you so much. All right, so thank you, Heidi. What a great interview and I've really loved talking to you. And uh, get out there and keep doing your good work. But thank you so much. We hope you found this conversation and information interesting, helpful and empowering with the Death, Dying, Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Help us empower others by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen. 